What was the last news that you received from home? I mean, we take in a vast amount of news daily from a huge variety of sources, don't we? Like, word of mouth, just talking to people, talking to friends, family, uh, the internet, social media, newspapers, TV, the radio, and so on. There's so many different news sources pouring into our lives. But out of all the news that we hear or we receive, news from our home community or our home city or home country tends to stand out, doesn't it? Now, if you're from Ottawa and always have been, this might not apply to you quite as much, but if you grew up or lived in any other area of the world, you know what I mean. Okay? As many of you know, I grew up when I was a child in California, and I still have many friends and family that live there. So, when I hear news from my home state, my interest gets piqued. Right? For example, a few years ago, a big earthquake struck about 15 minutes away from where I grew up. And no one was injured, which was great, but it made national news. And so when I heard about it, it was huge news for me, is hearing about this from my home area. Say you're from Africa, okay, and news from Cameroon or Zambia or other places like this, they don't mean that much to me. But to you, that news from your home country is fascinating. Or if you hail from the Philippines, or the UK, or somewhere maybe closer in Canada, or or in Ontario, another city, news from home is particularly meaningful to you when you hear about it. Now, news from home is especially gripping if it's tragic news. Then it really hits close to home. Pun intended. When you hear about an old friend passing away, or a war that's brewing in your home country, or some big crime that took place near where you grew up, or maybe a natural disaster that's just ravaging your homeland, earthquake, famine, storm, or tsunami. Think of people who are from Ukraine waking up this morning. Everyone may be shaken up by a tragedy, but if it's from your home, it especially rocks you. Today, in God's Word, we're going to actually see Jesus receive some significant news from home. Or more accurately, I should say, it's news about some people from home. And it was tragic news. But... Jesus has a very interesting response. Instead of letting the news rock him, the news actually provoked him to challenge the people around him. And in his words that we're going to read today, I believe we'll find a challenge for ourselves as well. And So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 13. If you don't have one of your own, you can grab a Bible from the pew in front of you, and it will be on page 872. Page 872 will be at the very beginning of Luke chapter 13. Now, this passage is definitely in character with Jesus' recent teachings. It's a little bit abrasive, a little bit shocking, sometimes confusing, but very honest truth. And truth that we really need to hear about in order to live in light 
of eternity. But before we read these words together, I want to pray for us as we begin. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come once again to your words this morning, we pray that your spirit would be guiding us into all truth, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to receive what you have for us. I believe you have something for each one of us that's here today to hear from you. We pray that we would hear, that we would understand, and then that we would obey what we hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the face of rising opposition to Jesus and his ministry, Jesus actually spent all of Luke chapter 12, what we just got out of, encouraging his followers to get their eyes off of their temporary worries and worldly riches and to fix their eyes on what matters most, on pursuing heavenly treasure, getting ready for Jesus' return, fully trusting God to protect them and to care for them in the meantime, to get ready for eternity. This is what really matters. Christ is coming back. Heaven is coming down, and we have got to be ready for that. So this is what Jesus has been pushing on his followers, just stressing the importance of it. And as we begin chapter 13, Jesus actually just finished his sermon. Okay, But the scene isn't quite done yet. Just finished saying all this, and some people in the crowd that were listening to this finally found the moment to speak up. We don't know who was speaking up here, we, and we don't know why they spoke up at this moment. Perhaps they were inspired by something Jesus said about peace and judgment recently. Maybe they were just curious. They had some news to share, and they were curious as to how Jesus would respond to their news. After all, they knew that Jesus was from Galilee, and this news had to do with Galilee, and so they thought Jesus would want to know this. Whatever the reason was, this is what we read, Luke chapter 13, verse 1. It says, There were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, this is the news, and, and whether or not Jesus had heard this news yet, it would have been major news in this region. Okay, and, and it was news that you would think would hit Jesus really close to home. Okay, he and many of his disciples were Galileans from Galilee in the north part of Israel, and we don't know much about this situation except what's mentioned here in Luke. Okay, this isn't mentioned in in any historical documents, but we have it here in the Bible. We know it's true, and this is actually the first time that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, is mentioned in Luke. He's going to come back into the story in a major way later on. But apparently, some people from Galilee had made a journey to Jerusalem, as it was common to do, where they intended to offer sacrifices at the temple, perhaps during Passover. Okay? But while they were there, they came to the temple, they had their sacrifices ready, they go into the temple, and they're, and they're making their sacrifices, when all of a sudden... Roman soldiers burst into the temple. And they pulled out their swords. And they slaughtered the Galileans that were there. This is not PG. 
Then they proceeded, it says, to splatter the human blood onto the sacrifices that they were making. We don't know what prompted Pilate to carry out this attack. Perhaps he saw these men who had come down to Jerusalem as potential, potentially revolutionary zealots. Maybe they were. We don't know. But this event certainly fit with Pilate's bloodthirsty reputation. One historian says that many massacres marked Pilate's administration. And in this case, Pilate turned some people's sacred pilgrimage into total sacrilege. Art Lindsley comes up with a possible modern-day equivalent. And he says, it would be as if terrorists came into a church and shot worshipers as they were partaking of communion and then mingled their blood with the communion wine. As you can imagine, the Jewish people would have been both horrified and outraged. Their countrymen were murdered. Their temple was defiled. Their sacrificial system was just mocked. For whatever reason, some people brought this news to Jesus to see how he would respond to it. Maybe they thought it would inspire him to take up his kingdom now. Don't know. But given the way that Jesus does respond, I think that Jesus knew what they were thinking. And I, and I think we can know what they were thinking. They were seeing this situation happen, and they were thinking some big questions. Questions that almost everyone asks in the face of a tragedy. Who is really to blame here? Who is really to blame? Why did God ever allow this to happen? What, what did these people do to deserve this? You ever asked those questions before? Yeah, of course we have. In Jesus' day, it was popularly believed that if you suffered, it was because of some sin in your life. So, the worse the tragedy, the worse you must have sinned. But as Jesus' words are going to show us, this was a very wrong conclusion to come to. In fact, asking who's to blame or how do they deserve this are the wrong questions to ask in the face of the tragedy. Why? Because of this. First point, suffering is not necessarily a sign of sin. Suffering and sin don't always go together. Suffering is not necessarily a sign of sin. Let's see how Jesus makes this point. Okay, they bring this news to him, and verse 2, Jesus answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Stop there for now. But what Jesus is saying here is, there is not a direct correlation between how much we sin and how much we suffer. Okay? They don't equate. People in Jesus' day thought there was that correlation. And so they would have been very surprised to hear Jesus say otherwise. And he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? You're wrong if you do. 
This was actually one of the many errors Job's friends told him. Remember the story of Job? Possibly the man who suffered more than any other man. And they told him in Job 4, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? They were wrong. And uh, in John 9, we're told another story of Jesus actually healing a man who was blind since birth. And Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Suffering entered the world because of sin. Okay? So, all suffering is ultimately a consequence of Adam's sin. But, it is not necessarily a punishment for your sin. Do you get the difference? It's important. But we might wonder, do we ever think this way? That our suffering is caused by our sin? I believe we do. Maybe not to the extent that people in Jesus' day did, but still. See, yes, God is absolutely sovereign. He is in control, and he has a reason for everything that ever happens. But, that does not mean that our suffering is punishment, or judgment, or even discipline. Necessarily. God, sometimes it does mean that. Okay? But not always. God has many sovereign purposes far beyond what we can imagine, and we don't always know why bad things happen to us. Okay? There will always be people who think that that people who that personal tragedies in someone's life are the victim's fault. You ever thought that way? Or met people that thought that? Okay. That, that victims of abuse or rape or injustice did something to provoke or enable their abuse. Or that all accidents could have been avoided. Or that poverty only happens to lazy people. Or that uh, trauma from abortion or AIDS or other things like this only happen because of immorality and so on and so forth. Every time you think, and I've thought this way, every time you think, oh, that person is just getting what they deserve. What if they're not? Maybe God is doing something else in their life. And we just can't see it. Like he was doing in the life of the blind man he healed. Or in the life of Job. Here's the huge problem of this way of thinking. If all of our suffering was a result of sin, and we all got what we deserved, we'd all be dead. The Jews thought people who suffered worse than themselves were worse sinners in some way. But there are no worse sinners in God's eyes. We're all equal sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, some sins are more obvious 
or more destructive or have greater consequences, but all sins are equal in their offense against God. And every sin, no matter how big or small, is deserving of hell. And that's why Jesus says here in verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I'm going to come back to that verse in a minute. But to elaborate his point, Jesus brings up another national tragedy that everyone in his day knew about. But while the first one, Pilate's attack, was an atrocity, the second one was just merely an accident, as far as we know. Read in verse 4. It says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Okay, so Jesus was describing some kind of tower collapse here. Again, we don't know much, but some speculate that this was a construction project. That they were building a tower, and as a team of men assembled this tower with really heavy stones, either someone made a mistake along the way, or the tower just wasn't stable yet, and it collapsed, crushing 18 men in a horrible death. And apparently, people were assuming that this must have been some kind of judgment from God. That he had carried this out, that that in some unknown ways, the deceased must have been worse offenders than other people. And God was judging them. But Jesus' point was the same here. Do you think they're worse? Verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Now, we don't think about this much. But it's actually wrong for us to presume upon God's judgment. To speculate that we know what God is up to. Okay? Unless you have a direct revelation from God, we can't assume that some disaster equals judgment. Okay? It is hypocritical regarding our own sins, thinking that someone else out there is worse than us. It is arrogant, even blasphemous, to think that we know the mind of God. It is inconsiderate and unloving of those going through the extreme suffering. I tell you, if you think someone's being judged, you're not going to help them. You're not going to love them. It's ultimately quite harmful to our Christian witness. Back in 2001, when terrorists flew airplanes into skyscrapers, many people, many Christians, speculated in this way. Was God judging the United States for their continual slide into secularism? Or in 2004, when an awful tsunami killed over 100,000 people in Asia, some thought, God must be judging the, the rampant idolatry of these nations. More recently, when a huge earthquake rocked the island of Haiti. Some Christians dared to suggest that this was a surefire sign of judgment. 
because of Haiti's reputation for the occult or voodoo or syncretism or Satanism or, or all these different things. But in response to that disaster in particular, Al Mohler wrote an article which I appreciated, and he said this, said, the arrogance of human presumption is a real and present danger. We can trace the effects of a drunk driver to a car accident, but we cannot trace the effects of voodoo to an earthquake, at least not so directly. Is the judgment of God something we can claim to understand in this sense, in the present? No, we are not given that knowledge. Why did no earthquakes shake Nazi Germany? Why did no tsunami swallow the killing fields of Cambodia? Why did Hurricane Katrina destroy far more evangelical churches than casinos? Why did so many murderous dictators live to an old age while so many missionaries die young? His point is very simply this. We don't know the answers to these questions. It's, it's very dangerous to assume that suffering is a direct result of someone's sin. Because, what does that imply when the wicked person prospers? Yes, everything is under God's control and purposes. But his purpose isn't always judgment. We need to be really careful of this if we're trying to minister to someone in the middle of suffering. Well, do this at some point in our life, but someone who's grieving or mourning or struggling, hurting, even dying, don't judge their suffering, okay? Don't say anything that is condemning to them. Love them. Spouting off verses about God's sovereignty isn't often the best response in those times. As true as they are. Sometimes, we just need to mourn with those who mourn. Sometimes we just need to stay silent. Sometimes, we need to only admit, we don't have all the answers. Let's trust that God does. Misfortune is not necessarily the result of our misdeeds, and neither is a lack of suffering proof of our goodness. That's the other side of this coin. Okay? Just because you're not suffering now doesn't mean you're in good shape with God. Often, I think we tend to equate suffering with evil and ease with goodness. Don't we? Right? Not all suffering is evil, and not all ease is good. There are hints of the health and wealth or prosperity gospel here. That thinking that if you're righteous, then you shouldn't suffer. Or maybe if you have enough faith, that you can pray the pain away. False. Sometimes... God wants us to suffer for our good, for our growth, and for his glory. I've never heard a prosperity preacher quote this verse. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But Jesus did. 
You know what the biggest proof that suffering is not an automatic sign of sin? Look at the cross. Look at the cross where the sinless Savior suffered and died. Jesus was not getting what he deserved. He didn't have any hidden sins in his life. Now, the cross actually was displaying judgment on sin, but not Jesus' sin, our sin. Okay, If someone assumed this direct correlation between suffering and sin, they would have assumed that Jesus must have been a very bad person. Of course he wasn't. The suffering was for us. So suffering is not necessarily a sign of sin. However, all that said, it is a sign of something. And Jesus makes this very clear here. Suffering is not a sign of sin, but suffering is a reminder of the importance of repentance. Suffering should evoke an earnestness or an urgency in us about repentance. Suffering is a reminder of the utter importance of repentance in our lives. You've already seen this, but verse 3 and verse 5 are identical. And the repetition that Jesus uses here shows us a key point. Okay, he wants to stress this. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And again, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So it doesn't matter if it's caused by an atrocity or an accident. Suffering doesn't equate with sin. Because we're all equally sinners, but we don't all equally suffer. However, human suffering should point us to something else we are all equal in. We will all die. We'll all die. Every time you hear of a death in the news, or multiple deaths, or even thousands of deaths, okay, a, a natural disaster, a school shooting, a car accident, a famous person's death, don't ask here, who is to blame? But do let it remind you of our mortality. We'll all die. Well, we get shaken up about disasters that claim thousands of lives at a time, and I think we should. And I don't want to minimize people's suffering in these tragedies in any way. Okay? But, do you know how many people in our world die every single day on average? 15500,000 every single day the overall death rate has remained constant throughout history 100% everyone dies and we will all die because we've all sinned now, this might confuse you because I just said suffering isn't a result of sin. But now I'm saying that death is the result of sin. Yes. Okay? It's that distinction again between consequence and punishment. Okay? Death is the natural consequence of us being born into sin. 
We're born sinners. It's a matter of specifics. Sin is the ultimate cause of suffering and death, but it's not necessarily the specific reason someone suffers and dies. Okay? You get the distinction there? Jesus here is pointing out the sins of pride or presumption or hypocrisy that we don't die because we're worse sinners. We die because we're sinners. It's as simple as that. Verse 5, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So because we all die, it's to remind us of the urgent need for us to repent. But not only will we perish in this life, if we don't repent, we will perish forever. Perishing in hell is ultimately what Jesus is talking about here. Think about it. Even if we do repent and fully and we live for Christ, we'll still die here on earth. Okay? We can't escape that death. But we can escape hell. We can escape hell. Eternal death by the amazing grace of God. Okay? How are we saved from hell? Only by believing in Jesus and repenting of our sins. Suffering should remind us that death is coming to everyone, and it may come at any time. Our mortality only underscores the need to respond to God's grace now. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, when you see someone suffer, Don't think about their sin. Think about yours. You know what it means to repent? Use the word a lot here, but to to repent means doing an about face. Okay? Doing a 180 degree turn from the direction you're going. I like this definition I've used before from Mark Driscoll. He says, Repentance is a change of mind. I was wrong. That provokes a change of heart. I need to stop, which leads to a changed life. So it's confession, contriteness, and conversion. It's a complete life change. It's leaving your sin and moving in the opposite direction. And when we see or experience suffering, we should allow it to point us once again to the gospel. To see, tragically, once again, how sin has made a disaster out of our world. To to see how it's made a wreck of your own life. And to see how death is coming quickly for you. But then, see how Jesus came. Then see how Jesus came and died your death for you in order to forgive your sins to free you from them see how Jesus came back to life to give you a new life he can offer that to you because he's risen again and see how Jesus will come again to restore our world and bring heaven to earth permanently ridding the universe of suffering and death our need is great. 
but God's solution is greater. Jesus more than mingled his own blood with our sacrifices. He made his blood our sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Don't put this off. Don't put this off. You can't get much clearer than Jesus is here. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's right there. And like I said last week, today is the day for salvation. Repent today and be saved forever. Hey, please, don't put this off. Come see me after the service. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to answer questions or pray with you. The urgency is real. Eternity is coming. Got to repent now. If you wonder through all this, what in the world could God be doing through the suffering in our world. What is he doing? It's okay to wonder this, to have questions, because we don't know all that he's doing. We don't know what he's bringing about. But take this to heart, okay? Take this to heart, that our God is not just sitting up in heaven smiting us with suffering, okay? Our God is a God who entered into our suffering, bore our suffering, experienced our suffering, and promised us to save us from all sin and suffering and death one day soon. That's our God. He's a God in the midst of the suffering. In this passage... Jesus is being fairly evangelistic, urging everyone to repent. But for many of us today, we might think, well, I guess this passage doesn't apply to me. After all, I've already repented. And many of us have already repented. However, if you think this passage doesn't apply to you, think again. Because repentance is much more than a one-time thing. And we'll see this as Jesus goes on. We're going to see this point, that true repentance will continually bear fruit in your life. If you truly repent, you'll continue repenting throughout your life. You'll keep bearing fruit. To make this point, Jesus tells another parable. So right after he says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 6, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? You know what's happening here? Okay, A man owns a vineyard full of crops, and in this vineyard he had planted a fig tree. Okay, Fig trees are very common in the Middle East. Uh, a common fruit to be harvesting. and But this particular tree was not doing its job. It wasn't producing fruit. It wasn't producing figs. And this owner was looking forward to either eating the figs or selling them. We don't know. 
But he kept getting more and more disappointed when he kept going back to the tree over and over again and finding none. I felt this way last year with some flowers that I planted for my wife. I bought some, my wife some tiger lilies, which if you don't know, they're, they're a beautiful, vibrant orange flower. And after the initial bloom, they came up, they, they bloomed, but then the flowers just disappeared long before they were supposed to. Okay? I saw the little seasons that they were supposed to bloom, and it was like a, a, just a fraction of how long they were supposed to be there. And for the rest of the summer, I kept expecting the flowers to come back at some point. The plant's still alive. I mean, the flowers have to be coming. And I kept watching them, kept checking them, kept watering them, but to no avail. And by the end of the season, I was fairly disappointed that they just never bloomed again. Maybe they will again this year. I don't know. (laughs) But in this parable, the man had already waited patiently for, for years for this fig tree. Three years to be exact. And so he felt he had finally had enough. Nuts enough. Verse 7 tells the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? No fruit meant that the tree was merely taking up valuable space in his vineyard. It's taking up space. And instead of this tree, he could plant something else in that ground. Something that would actually bear fruit. This parable is a serious warning to anyone who thinks they're saved, but who aren't bearing fruit. Saw John the Baptist similarly warn us back in Luke 3. He said to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If you've truly repented of your sins, your life will bear fruit. What does fruit look like? What does it mean to to grow fruit? Well, it means that you'll be growing more holy. You'll be sinning less and less frequently. Praying more. Having more faith. Be developing love and faithfulness and self-control and these other fruits of the Spirit. They grow in our lives. You'll be less and less attached to the things of this world and longing more for heaven. You'll be reaching out more to others. Serving. Giving. Giving more of your time. More of your resources. If you say you're a Christian... But these things aren't increasing or growing in your life. It's very possible that you're like this barren fig tree. Repentance without fruit is not real repentance. Just like faith without works isn't real faith. True repentance changes your life and then continues to change your life. It's a lifestyle of repentance. And why is this? It's because sin is still a big part of our lives, isn't it? 
At salvation, Jesus forgives us of all our sins, frees us from our sins, destroys sin's power. But that doesn't mean we won't still struggle with indwelling sin. It's still there in our lives. And so, as God calls us to be holy and to grow in holiness, our task becomes continually rooting out and destroying sin in our lives. Soon as we see it, getting rid of it. Every time we're made aware of sin in us, and God will keep doing that, His Spirit keeps convicting us throughout our lives. And when we're made aware of it, it's another opportunity for us to repent. Once again, it's another opportunity for us to move in the opposite direction, to follow Jesus, to flee our sin, and follow Him. We bought a, a van last year as a family, and we're fairly happy with it. Guys who are scared of buying a minivan, it's not that bad. <laughs> okay? But we're happy with this van. But what if I told you, when I got the van, when we bought it, I filled up the tank with gas, okay? And since that day, I've never had to fill it up with gas again. I think I was crazy. Every time the gas tank gets down toward empty, we have to fill up the gas tank again. It's natural. And repenting, I think, should be kind of like us noticing the gas light come on in our car. Okay? Every time you notice that gas light come on, you fill up your tank again. And every time you notice that sin pop up in your life, and it will, You repent again. You fill yourself up with Christ. The Christian life is one of continual realization of sin, followed by mortification of sin. What that means? We realize we have a sin, and then we kill it. That's the Christian life. This parable certainly applies to us. But it had a more immediate application for Jesus' hearers. In Scripture, the nation of Israel is often described as a vineyard or a fig tree. Hosea 9.10 says, Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your father. Speaking of the fathers of Israel. Isaiah 5.7 says, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So as these people heard Jesus say these words, this would have been very personal to them. Even the fact that the vineyard owner kept checking for three years, I think is significant. That's about how long Jesus' ministry had been going on in Israel. And so throughout Jesus' ministry, God was continually looking for fruit from his people. But he wasn't finding it. And so he warned them that their time was running out. Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now, fortunately for the barren fig tree here, hope wasn't completely lost yet. And that's because there was someone looking out for them, for the tree. That's the vine dresser who would have been a hired hand, hired worker in the vineyard, tasked with caring for the plants, looking after them. And right after the owner told the vine dresser to cut the tree down, the vine dresser replied in verse 8, 
And he answered him, the vine dresser answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and, and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. Like, I know this tree has been fruitless, but, but can we give it one more chance? One final chance? Look, I'll work extra hard to try to redeem this plant. I'll try to get it to bear some fruit. I'll dig an irrigation trench around it so it gets watered better. And I'll just, I'll give it an extra dose of fertilization so just to get it healthier and, and having better food. It's like the vine dresser said, give me this one year. Okay? If I can turn it around, we all win. If I can't in that time, then probably is hopeless, and, and we can we can chop it down then. One last ditch effort. Now, we've got to be careful not to read too much into a parable. Okay, but if this parable was primarily talking about Jesus' ministry to Israel, that's what it was talking about. And this last-ditch effort would be referring to the end of his life. He had a short amount of time left to try to turn this fig tree around. And he would go above and beyond in this time to save the tree, even going to the extreme lengths of dying and rising again. I think the, the cross and the resurrection might be taking some liberties, but... I think they're essentially the trough and the fertilizer here. The last ditch effort to save his people. And Jesus is like, if this doesn't save you, then nothing will. If this doesn't save you, if, if you see the cross and you see the empty grave and you're still not convinced, maybe hopeless. If you turn from your sins in this time, great, well and good. If not, then it might be the end. God was giving his people one final window of repentance. But that window of repentance wouldn't stay open forever. And neither will ours. Neither will ours. Norval Geldenheis says this, Although God, in his grace, postpones for such a long time the punishment of the impenitents, in order to give them the opportunity of repentance, the day will nevertheless finally dawn when the time of grace expires. If you're still alive, sit in the pew breathing today, it means God's still waiting on you. God is still giving you yet another chance. The only reason we're still here is because of God's patience and mercy. There's no other reason. God longs for you to repent. He is so patient with you. But don't assume that his patience will never run out. Because it will. You don't know when your last chance to repent will be. It could be right here, right now, today. Maybe your last chance. So I urge you, if you have not gotten right with God yet, 
you need to repent today. If you thought you had, but your life hasn't borne any fruit, you need to truly repent today. And for all of us, if God has exposed some sin in our hearts today, we must repent again. Confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us. Like the vine dresser, Christ is interceding for us, for our salvation, for our sanctification. He's longing for your friends or your family members' salvation. In Matthew Henry, an old scholar says, had it not been for Christ's intercession, the whole world would have been cut down. Had it not been for Christ pleading for us, the world would have been destroyed. So, when you see disaster strike in our world, when you see criminals running wild, when you hear of wars, persecution, heartbreak, tragedy, when you feel the pains of death hit close to home once again, the right question to ask is not who's to blame, but am I right with God? Am I right with God? Personal suffering is not necessarily a sign of personal sin. Instead, suffering should remind us of our inevitable mortality, and it should drive us to our knees in worship of the one who suffered for us. Thank God for his intercession. Thank God for his patience. Thank God for his mercy. And thank God for providing a way of escape for all who will repent. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. God, we need you so desperately. You see us and we are all sinners. We are all condemned to die. But through your grace, you have reached down into our broken world and you've started making things right. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the new life that you've given many of us and that you're offering today to anyone who would come to you. We pray that you would do that today. Show your grace strong once again. Help us to run to you. Run to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.